Welcome to From Heartache to Healing and Hope with your host, Bernadette Winters-Bell, LMSW. This podcast explores the many layers of life through the lens of loss and grief, often with special guests who share their perspectives on this universal yet unique process. These explorations can offer you, the listener, avenues to encourage you to have these conversations with yourself, your family, your community, your world. Hello, I'm Bernadette Winterspell, your host of the podcast From Heartache to Healing and Hope. And for you, my audience, I have brought Andy Puritz. He's an attorney here locally in Oneonta, New York, a self-described aldecaca. It means, he says, an old fart. <laughs> and he's interesting and funny and educated and really has very interesting views about things. I think you're really going to enjoy this. It's not dry, like maybe you might think an attorney might be. Nope, he's an aldecaca. And I can't wait for you to join me. Come and listen. Hi, I'm Bernadette Winters-Bell, host of the podcast From Heartache to Healing and Hope. And today in our series, Same Storm, Different Boats, I'd like to welcome my special guest, Andy Puritz. Welcome, Andy. Hi there. How are you, Bernadette? Wonderful. It's so good to have you here today. Thanks. So would you be so kind as to introduce yourself to my audience who may not have the pleasure as I do of knowing you? Oh, heavens. I'm Andy Puritz. I'm an, uh, a family guy. I live in Oneonta, New York. I am an attorney and have been for something in excess of 40 years, which I just <laughs> makes me smile. It means that I'm officially in Alta Cocker. <laughs> well, welcome to that stage of life. <laughs> which uh, not all of your audience may understand, sometimes abbreviated to an AK. But the polite translation, the polite translation is, I'm an old fart now. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. So it has become known to me, Andy, that after World War I, which of course was a time in history that didn't have the communication um, availability that we have today, Mm -hmm. When people saw each other after the war, they would say, how was your war? Mm. So that they could better understand how family and friends and community members had lived their lives during that time. So I say to you, Andy, how has your pandemic been? Oh, I've been luckier than most, I guess. Mm. It's been a, a very rough time for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a, uh, you know, I'm 67 now, so, and also maybe uh, a little heavier than I should be. So I guess I fall into one of those uh, risk categories. But just even if I was a young guy, and even if I was as fit as I had been, I'd still be at risk because we all are. It's something that we all share. I've had several friends and a number of family members who have caught it. Mm. Thankfully, and knock wood, nobody's passed on, but a few were hospitalized. Everybody's okay now. I think that's something that I share with most people in this country that we, we all know someone. So uh, in terms of my professional life, it, everything is in disarray. 
but we're all managing. There's no longer any uh, in-person court appearances. There had been um, in sort of a, uh, one of these things, you know, as the first wave passed and the Office of Court Administration, which is the administrative agency that oversees court work in New York State, had started to allow in-person court appearances again. Second wave and third wave, we've gone back to uh, the way it had been. Just this morning, before speaking with you, I had two virtual court appearances. Is that on Zoom or something like that? Um, it used to be Skype. Mm -hmm. Now it's something called Microsoft Teams. I think they change it periodically just to keep us on our toes and to call out technologically. <laughs> those people not willing or able to learn those skills. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much I'm allowed to swear on your podcast, but it's a nuisance. And uh, they actually went, the, the court I was in today was by telephone. They didn't have it set up. So wow. it worked. Most of the time, it's, it's just fine. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you where it's going to get interesting is uh, when it comes to actual trials and uh, what, what in family court are called fact-finding hearings and what in the criminal or civil context are called good old-fashioned trials. Mm. Uh, I've had some small hearings, mm -hmm. but I don't like them and I object to, I've objected to the trials that have come up taking place remotely because the whole essence of the trial process is for the trier of fact. That's the jury if there's a jury. Sometimes it's the judge, for example, in family court, the family court judge wears both hats. They're both the trier of the law, what's legal and what's not, also the trier of the fact. Right. In well, some courts, that's a bench trial, right? That's correct. And the idea is you're supposed to look at the witnesses right. and judge their credibility. Right. And that's hard enough to do when you're in person. Right. When you have the full value of hearing every inflection in the voice, observing body language, observing expression and uh, seeing interactions between the witness and other people in the courtroom, observing reactions elsewhere. And also the energy of the person. There's something about when you're in a room with people where you feel when they're apprehensive or uh, wanting to be truthful or yeah. portray themselves as truthful. Yeah, so the, even that energy is, is missing. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, and when and what what are we talking about here? We're talking in some cases, you know, somebody might be going to prison. Right. Depending on what the result is. So uh, I've got a, a motion all prepared and ready to argue <laughs> to oppose having uh, virtual trials. Fortunately, I haven't had anything serious come up since this happened. Everything's being kicked down. Right, to maybe next spring or some time frame like that. Yeah, some of the trials that have come up, uh, they're talking about May or June. Right, wow. And that has a consequence too. Absolutely. I mean, what if some poor bastard's in jail awaiting right. their turn? And can't afford the bail or there is no bail and they have to wait until the trial because of COVID. Absolutely. Correct. Now, 
there has been bail reform in New York State, which you no doubt heard about, mm -hmm. which makes it easier for judges to release people without bail restraints, which I support. It's, okay. it's, it's appropriate. Right. There's a myth out there that, oh, because of the bail reform, we're allowing dangerous and violent people to be released without holding them. That's not so. If the, if the crime that is charged, using my example here, if the crime that is charged is a violent one or a dangerous one where the interests of the public are at stake, the judge is not required to release somebody without bail. But the fundamental purpose of bail is to make sure you show up in court when you're supposed to. Right. And it's only to the defendant's own interest to show up when they're supposed to. Otherwise, they get into more trouble. Absolutely. And the judge isn't going to have much difficulty with it yet. Yeah. And I would imagine the judge isn't going to want to put into the community someone that has the uh, possibility or potential uh, yeah. to do something that could harm anyone because that's not to anyone's good interest. Absolutely. Well, you know, people who are likely to flee, um, yeah. people who have felony records, people who are charged with sex crimes, people who are charged with violent crimes, the judges have a lot of discretion. Wow. But I think I'm, I'm, I'm stepping away from your, your question, which is more broadly, how's the pandemic affecting me? Yes, how has it been for I'm you? Managing, I'm managing the same way we all are. And uh, I have high hopes for the vaccine. I'm encouraging everybody I meet to treat it with respect and to participate in it. I've had lots of conversations already with not so much COVID deniers as anti-vax people generally who buy into this pseudo-scientific argument that there's harm to be caused by taking vaccines. And no doubt, like any other scientific process or medical process, there have been failures along the way or mistakes that were made and, and some uh, people who were uh, guilty of having poor intentions, but for the most part, one of the great things about living in the 21st century is we are free of the scourge of infectious diseases for the most part. You know, uh, I, I, did, I never had the mumps, but my brothers did, five and 10 years older than me. Uh, you know, I mean, what are we gonna do? Go back to a time where we allowed children to suffer from polio because we have objections to the science behind vaccines. Well, you can see going, looking into the future that certain things, it might become necessary to say you have to have a COVID vaccination to go to school along with measles and mumps, chicken pox and whatever else are there. Yeah, and I'm sure that time will come. Right. Um, I'm, what I'm curious about is two things. Uh, thing number one is, is it going to have to be a annual event like a flu shot because there's a constant mm -hmm. regeneration of strains of, you know, this terrible thing? Right. Or is it a one time and or you just get it and then you're more, done? Second thing. Right. So for you personally, yeah. let me take well, it back. I, 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 want, I just wanted to finish this point. I wanted yeah. to finish. What scares me is what's going to happen when there's a really deadly disease that emerges from our climate challenged world, 
Mm -hmm. It creates a new environment that allows different pathogens to arise. I mean, uh, we'd be having a completely different conversation if we were talking about plague or if we were talking about Ebola, if we were talking about, you know, a disease that instead of having a small fatality percentage gets up to 50, 60 percent. And there's nothing to prevent it from happening. We just, as a society, kind of want to be ready for it. And I think there are portions of our society that in fact have been getting ready for it for a long time. And other parts that hmm, find it very difficult, I imagine, uh, to think that this is part of their lives. That sounds like perhaps science fiction to them or something that shouldn't affect their life. They should be taken care of and we move on, you know, but that's not quite where we are. No. I think about people that went through the flu pandemic of early in the 20th century and then World War One and Two, uh, and all the other police actions and wars we've been in and think about, we know a lot about what, what happened for the facts, but I think about the people that went through those times. And we don't hear a lot of stories about how they got through it. And so that's why I asked the question, how was your pandemic? So in the beginning, when it started to happen, and I know I saw you right before the first shutdown, yep. and you thought I was gonna make you dead uh, because I took your hands, your face in my hands to wish you well and to be sweet. You're such an affectionate person, Bernard. <laughs> you know, you can't keep your hands to yourself. You've got a hug, you've got a... And, and boy, I almost, what was that thing that Ralph used to say? Bang, zoom, Alice. It wouldn't have been good if you did that. <laughs> but of course, it was right before the shutdown. Yep. Um, and you were maybe more concerned than I was at that moment, obviously. Um, I was still in the, the, you're my friend and I wish you well. Of course, and it was right at, it was right at the cusp. Right, we, it was the Friday before my office got shut down, yeah. Yours was the last physical human contact I had, friend to friend, handshakes, hugs, you know, a peck on the cheek, whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. That was you, Bernadette, that, that was, except for family, that was the last physical contact I've had since this thing started. So you're trying to say to me that you were mad before and now you're thankful to me? Is that what I'm hearing, Andy? I wasn't mad before. <laughs> I wasn't mad before. I thought I, it was very sweet and I wasn't bothered. You know, I love you, so I wasn't bothered. Okay. I did, however, get into my car where I have a bottle of Purell <laughs> and I put a bunch on my hand, rubbed it all over my face, but it and wasn't you, because I was you angry. You took away the cooties that I had given you. Yeah. Although, I, I hate to say this, the Purell smells better than my cologne. <laughs> That's another conversation, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> so when it did, after we saw each other that time and they did have the shutdown and you were hoping that evening to um, take your lovely lady for a dinner and a movie. That's and of right. course those, yeah. Um, so how did your personalized life change from that point? 
Wow, that's very interesting. Well, like everybody else, it shut down. Right. I uh, stayed at home. Um, we watched a lot of, you know, Nancy, we we're talking about my lovely girlfriend, Nancy. She uh, moved in with me, as a matter of fact. Well, there's a big change. Well, <clears throat> what happened was um, her son's employment changed mm. because his job shut down in many ways. He had a girlfriend. She was a teacher. That school shut down. Oh, my, yeah. So she moved in with him, but that was a different bubble. Mm -hmm. She moved in with me. I like to think it was my deep romantic appeal, but it wasn't. It just worked out that way. And we were in a position where we could help each other as families and as friends and as, you know, a romantic relationship. So she stayed with me for, I think, eight months. Wow. Till uh, things allowed for her to move back into her place. And we still see each other all the time, but it worked out, you know, it, it just worked out that way. So we were able, we were fortunate. We were able to uh, provide each other with that contact, that human contact that so many people just don't have. And, you know, well, in what you do, you know the difference between someone who is lonesome and lonely Right. It's a tremendous difference. And not everybody was as fortunate as I. And I was able to uh, get this far. My kids, you know, all had their own experiences with it as well. You know, uh, my son, for example, Jacob, you remember Jacob, lives in Troy. Mm -hmm. Well, he fundamentally hasn't left his apartment except to go to the grocery store since this thing started. Uh, the same with my daughters at, at their various homes. Mm. And I know we're not alone in that. It, it really does stink. Doesn't it aggravate the heck out of you though to see people sort of callously ignoring these facts and, and sort of congregating and walking around without a care that bothers me quite a bit you it know um, I, I went from being aggravated by it i can't stay in the aggravated state long mm -hmm. um and i go to the why would they be like this like like a scientific research project because i believe that most people are fundamentally good and they're not doing it to be bad, but somehow it suits a need of theirs, or they feel as if perhaps someone's taken something from them. So I've come to the point to think about more about control, about how when we feel like life is out of our control, which we certainly all feel from time to time, and certainly this year, and how do we react to control being taken from us? Indeed. And so I try to see it more through that lens that people might feel that control is taken from them and no one's gonna tell them what to do might be a reaction. Mm -hmm. And I feel that's probably truer than they're not gonna wear a mask, say for instance, because they don't care about me. Although I might feel that way. 
Right. So I try to see it more in that way. Um, because that sits better in my soul, but also because when I'm out in public or on Zoom sessions or wherever, I wanna send out love, kindness and support to people. And I wanna do it honestly. Um, and so I can do that with everyone, no matter what their position is. So. Well, that's, I think that it's a very healthy way to look at it. And I try to do that too, perhaps not with your, you know, uh, level of equanimity, but I try. Well, it, it's, and it's difficult to do, you know, sometimes. Um, what in your background of the different things that you've done over the years, would you say has come into play during this time of the pandemic? Wow. I've dealt with an awful lot of people in the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all have, when you get to a certain age, you look back and you say, wow, think of all the, the many, many thousands of people that you've interacted with. Right. What was that great line of Mark Twain's? Uh, he said, when I was 18, I thought my father was a fool. When I was 21, I was amazed at how much he had learned in three years, <laughs> right? I feel that way a little bit. Mm. Um, I'm much, I, I, I like to think that I'm less judgmental than I was then. Mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe, uh, you know, more open to the differences in folks. But I've, I've been involved in politics in the past. Not, I, I ran for office once and fortunately for the body politic, I lost. And also, <clears throat> I've been involved in Democratic Party politics for a long time, less so in recent years. Mm -hmm. um, it's been easy to hand it off to, you know, younger people who are uh, more energetic than I am now. But nonetheless, boy, this has been a terribly frustrating year to mm -hmm. not be able to go out into a bar and get into an argument, a friendly argument with somebody about what's right and wrong and what's best. And I think it's one of the things that allowed Trump the leeway that he's had this year. The fact that everybody's in their bubble. Every, and this isn't anything that you haven't heard about or, or know of your own experience, but we tend to seek out those sources of information that reinforce what we already believe. Now, when I was growing up and I suspect, I think I have a few years on you, when you were growing up, certainly when I was, we had ABC, NBC, CBS. People would come home from work, switch on the news. There'd be a half hour news broadcast, ten, eight or 10 minutes of which were commercials and Everybody in the country fundamentally had the same basic core avenues of information that they would draw upon. Now, you also, on the other extreme, had local newspapers. You had the big national papers, of course, and they were fine, whatever stripe they, you might have preferred. But then every community also had a local newspaper 
Where I grew up, there were three, four, or five daily newspapers. Wow, where was that, Andy? Mamaroneck, New York, which is in Westchester, and we used to get the uh, the city editions of the newspapers. So, uh, you know, in addition to the New York Times, there'd be the Daily News, the Post, but there was also the Herald Tribune, and and you know, uh, I remember the Christian Science Monitor. There were all sorts of wonderful newspapers that you could get, but fundamentally, everybody was listening to the basic same chunk of news and it meant that we were experiencing everything communally as citizens even if you were quite young even if you were a child and that first with the advent of cable tv and then with the advent of the multiple channels available on cable and then of course the tech revolutions in the you know 90s and to this day, if you don't choose to, you can go an entire lifetime without listening to one of the national networks. You may not even need to. And if you're of a particular stripe, why you can tune in MSNBC and be reinforced in your liberal or progressive views. If you're more conservative, you can tune into Fox and be reinforced in those views. And it makes it harder for people to understand each other or to at least accept the differences one from the other. And, and that's where we used to have civics. Do you remember when they taught civics in school? Absolutely. And in, in essence, we were having civil conversations, even if we had very uh, varying, different, opposing, strong, passionate views. But yes. it was passionate about the subject, not about that you're bad because you don't agree with me. And it meant that we all had a core investment mm -hmm. in the agencies that make our democracy work and make it, you know, as a federal republic, right. you know, a democratically based federal republic with different levels of jurisdiction. We may not, not everybody was conversant with everything, nor did they have to be, right. but everybody knew that these things existed and there was a certain level of civil discourse, even if you, you know, back in the fifties, the thing with Joe McCarthy and the, and the right. House on American Activities Committee, or actually the Senate and with McCarthy and on American Activities Committee, and that the famous Army McCarthy hearings where Joseph Welch, the attorney for who had been hired to represent the Army in the Senate hearings against these wild accusations from Joe McCarthy that the place was rife with communists. And they had their famous confrontation on the air, on television, observed by 70 million Americans who had never seen something like this happen before. And McCarthy took that one step too far. Mm -hmm. And he accused a young attorney in Welch's staff of having communist affiliations. And Welch was ready for him. And he, but the point I'm making is even when he rammed that down McCarthy's throat. He did so in the context of civil behavior in civil discourse. 
he said, I never would have believed that you could be so reckless as to damage this young man's reputation and career with your casual remarks. And then the famous line, he said, so at long last, sir, have you no sense of decency left? Right? Now that didn't stop him from calling McCarthy, sir. It didn't stop him from speaking in a quiet and measured voice. And the effectiveness of what he said was magnified a hundred times by the fact that he didn't shout it or sneer it. He didn't preface it with a, a, a snarky nickname. He was speaking. Quietly, and he didn't make sure that any of McCarthy's associates uh, lost their jobs or had their reputations smeared or other things that were going on. Yes, I think that you make a very interesting valid point that when we have a society, say now with, um, so we'll say with social media, that people feel they can say whatever is on their mind and not have the repercussions that you would get in a face-to-face -face conversation. Um, and that has hmm, been something I think that has influenced, informed how people deal with one another. And, and not necessarily in a good way from this perspective. And during this time of the pandemic, if for some people, of course, it's reinforced that, but for others, it has said, wait a minute, now that I'm not on that gerbil wheel and I'm working from home or don't have a job and my children aren't going to school and they're here and we're all together, we have to learn to be civil in this little space of our home. Yeah. And then what does it look like in our family, in our community, in our nation, in our world? And so my hope is that this is a time that people will have or have used to be more reflective of where everything is going and how we can, each of us, influence this. Not all of us are going to be in the courts or on TV, but every one of us can have good thoughts for others, can smile, can see someone and say, nice jacket, you look handsome in that. And mm -hmm. I think that sending out goodness that way, it might sound Pollyanna-ish, but I'm sticking. Uh, I don't think necessarily that that is the case at all. I mean, uh, civility starts with the little stuff and it moves up yeah. through the big stuff. And uh, there's no reason not to be civil. Absolutely. First off, it's more pleasant. Exactly. You know, we get them. You know, something that I think is very interesting, Bernadette, how civil discourse has, has become a matter of shorter and shorter little bites of conversation and information. Mm -hmm. And that first came to my notice in 2000 during the presidential campaign. It was my first experience with a chat room online. I, th I think it might have been through the Yahoo website or something. But I happened to come across it, and there were all these people who were, you know, saying, oh, Gore sucks. 
And then, you know, somebody else would say, Bush bites. And it was just like down the page. Right. And so I said, wait, wait, no, 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 wait, wait a second. And I put in like two, three paragraphs explaining why Al Gore didn't suck and Bush didn't necessarily bite. And I hit send about that long. Silence through the internet. Because it was about this much too long for them. <laughs> didn't respond at all. And I pictured in my mind's eye, tens of thousands of people reading it. And then finally, after this long, embarrassing silence, somebody somewhere, boy, you sure can't type. <laughs> what a great response. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I'll go exactly. off into my little, you know, <laughs> I think I'll have a conversation with somebody in person instead. I love it. So after all that, the conversation we've had, what gives you hope for the future, sir? Children. Children give me hope for the future. Um, it's an interesting question. I, I, nobody's ever asked me that recently in plain terms like that. And I think that gut response is the correct one. Not just children, but adults, parents desire to see their children grow and thrive and not suffer. Beautiful. Because people do not wish to see their children suffer. That's right. And people, I think, still respond to the innocence of a child, they respond to the trust that a child places, not just in their parents, but in the world at large, that uh, people don't really want to see a world where uh, children's trust is going to be misplaced and where children are going to suffer through the uh, callousness of others. That gives me hope, I think. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much for being such an interesting guest today, Andy, on my podcast, From Heartache to Healing and Hope. We're, this is the same storm, different boats, but it's been a pleasure paddling with you today on this boat. So thank you so much for joining me. And please give my love to your lovely family and uh, best wishes to you, Bernadette, as you go forward. I've listened, you know, when you asked me to be on this thing, I did spend time listening to your other podcast because I wanted to know how deep this water was before I dove in and I've enjoyed it very much and I'll Excellent. continue. Excellent. So I have some other interesting ones coming up so stay tuned and thank you again Andy.